2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, beginning in verse number 1. Listen to Paul's words to the church at Corinth. He says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that you gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you, Paul says, to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. Verse 90 says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Here is my advice, Paul says, it would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Verse 12, whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. And then verse 15, he ends by saying, as the scripture says, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over and those who gathered only a little had enough. Father, we thank you for time together in your presence today. And Lord, now we thank you for your word. Your word is alive, it is powerful. It is a revelation of who you are and you have given us your word. And so I pray today that as we spend the next few moments digesting and unpacking this text that you, Holy Spirit, would begin to speak to every heart and every life in this room, myself included. Pray that you would change us and transform us. Lord, we, we desire, we long to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And so help us to see, help us to understand what it looks like to follow you. Help us to understand what it looks like to be obedient to you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. Help me to declare your word this morning with boldness, with clarity, with simplicity. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that this word would change and transform every heart and life in this room so that when we leave here today, we leave here different than how we came in. God, I pray that you would help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together in this place today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul's challenge uh, given to the church in Philippi actually sums up, I think, beautifully the Christian pursuit. I want you to see and I want you to listen to these words of Paul in Philippians 1, 27. This is how he really kind of opens up his letter to the church at Philippi. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news about Christ. We are to conduct ourselves. We are to live as citizens of heaven, first and foremost, 
knowing that that is, Paul will later say um, in Philippians, that our citizenship primarily resides or first and foremost resides in heaven. We are just aliens. We are just foreigners who are passing through. Yes, we might be citizens of America, but first and foremost, we as children of God are citizens of heaven. Therefore, we are to live, Paul says, we are to live as citizens of heaven and we are to conduct ourselves. Our conduct should reflect that of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this series, Disciples, it was designed to really capture and to teach us to live as disciples or to live the disciples' life here on earth. And so far, we've discovered that a true disciple of Jesus, first of all, prays earnestly. We talked about the, the gritty determination, the, the unrelenting persistence or the unwavering devotion. Remember, Paul says that I want you to pray without ceasing or to pray earnestly or to pray, have this devoted prayer life. And we looked at uh, William Cowper's hymn. It says, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And we talked about the importance and the power of prayer. Nothing of eternal significance, nothing of great significance happens apart from the people of God praying. As disciples, as followers of Jesus, we need to develop a discipline, a lifestyle where we are praying earnestly. Number two, we talked about abiding in Christ. We looked at John chapter 15. Remember, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You are to remain in me. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will produce much fruit. But remember, when the, when the branch is severed or cut off from the vine, it loses its source of life. Jesus is our source of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we are to, we are to stay connected. We are to remain in Christ. And as we remain in him, and as his word it remains in us or is lodged into our heart and our mind, what, what happens is we begin to have the heart and the mind of Christ. And, and I love the picture that we see in John chapter 15, verse seven. It talks about as we remain in Jesus and his word remains in us, what happens is we, we are uh, so in tune with God and our will and our desire. What happens is I start to want what God wants. I start to desire what he desires. I start to long for what he longs for. My heart burns for what his heart burns for so that when I start to pray, my prayers are answered, not because I just get what I want. My prayers are answered because I'm praying what God longs for. And so we are to abide in Christ so that we can be fruitful for the kingdom of God. But today, the third mark of discipleship that we're going to look at is this idea of gracious generosity or giving generously. Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 offers several important truths related to this third mark of being a disciple. Before we actually unpack this text, I wanna give you just a little bit of background into Paul's words, because in order to understand what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, we really need to understand this whole concept of what he's referring to. In chapters eight and nine, Paul is actually referring to what is called the Jerusalem collection. Unless we read the rest of scripture, we're not gonna really understand what he's referring to, but he's talking about this Jerusalem collection. If we know Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas they were missionaries. Uh, they were sent out to go and to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And, and they made this, this missionary compact, they made this covenant or this agreement 
with some of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, James and Peter and John. And this compact was really a statement that Paul said, we agree to make certain to help the poor in the Jerusalem or the Judean church. Look at Galatians chapter two. This gives us a picture of this compact that is made. It says, in fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, they recognized the gift God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers, and they encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, and Paul says, which I have always been eager to do. So Paul and, and Barnabas agreed to make certain, even when they go into the Gentile region, that they, would, that they would collect the necessary funds to help the poor in the Jerusalem church. Paul spent a good portion of his ministry among the Gentiles soliciting funds for the Jerusalem collection in order to help the poor in the Judean church. And this is important to understand. This church, the Jerusalem church, where it really began, if you remember in Acts, they were in Jerusalem. They were in the upper room. They were waiting for the promise of the Father to come. The Holy Spirit came. Really, the first seven or eight chapters is dedicated in Acts to the ministry and life of the church inside Jerusalem. But when persecution came, what happened? They began to spread. They went outside of Jerusalem. And then we get to chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas, they are commissioned, or chapter 13, they're commissioned to take the gospel into the Gentile region and then they start to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But in Jerusalem in the 40s, mid to late 40s AD, they were experiencing harder than normal economic times due to a famine. And so Paul and Barnabas, they, they agreed, they, they formed this compact with the Jerusalem church that wherever they go, they would make certain to collect the necessary funds to help the church in Jerusalem. We see this uh, later, Paul and Barnabas, they would actually make a visit, an initial famine relief, relief visit, delivering a gift to the church in Antioch. Look at Acts chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. It says, so the believers in Antioch, they decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. They, this they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders, speaking of Peter and James and John, to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And so then the Corinthian believers, here's what I want you to see then, coming back to our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Corinthian believers, they actually were participating with other churches. They were participated in this giving campaign at the very beginning, but apparently, as we see from the, the letter, their enthusiasm or their participation began to taper off a little bit. And so Paul would actually send Titus to the, the, the church at Corinth to really encourage them and, and to challenge them once again to get on board with this ministry of giving as they supported the church. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, so we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish the ministry of giving. And then later in verse 10, it says, here is my advice Paul says to the church in Corinth, here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first, Paul said, to begin doing it. But now apparently that, that enthusiasm and that sense of generosity has begun 
to taper off. Therefore, Paul is writing this letter. Therefore, Paul is, is sending Titus to deliver this letter, to encourage them, to, to really reignite in them the passion that they once had, the generosity, the spirit of generosity they once had to support the church. Now, it is from this context, then, that Paul offers up a wealth of wisdom surrounding yet again another clear marker of one who calls himself or herself a disciple of Jesus, and that is this sense or this spirit of gracious generosity. Several important truths emerge as Paul recalls the giving lifestyle of the Macedonian church and the example of Christ. And here's what I want you to see before I jump into any of these points this morning. What Paul is going to do, he's writing the letter to the church in Corinth. And he wants to reignite their passion and their spirit of generosity. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to refer to the generous spirit of the church at Macedonia. The church in Macedonia would be made up of the, the church at Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And so what Paul does is he really, I don't think this would be a technique I would use today, but what Paul does is he's going to compare the generosity of the church in Corinth to that of the church in Macedonia. And he will use them and he will use the example of Christ who was rich in heaven and he gave up or he set aside his divine privileges to come and spend time here on earth. He's going to use those two examples to really reveal to us the need and the importance of having a spirit of generosity. And so, so when we refer refer to this spirit of generosity, often what Paul's doing is he is referring to the church in Macedonia in order to encourage the church in, in, in Corinth to, to pick up their game a little bit and, and to know what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. A few things that I want to share with you this morning. Number one, generosity is an act of divine grace. And I want you to see this. Look at the text again. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Look at verses one and two. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. Here's what I want you to understand. Grace here in this context, grace here speaks of divine enablement. If you still have your Bibles open, look at chapter nine, look at verse eight. We see this same picture. It says, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over, look at this, to share with others. We see this picture of divine enablement. God's grace, look at this, God's grace given to the church has enabled them to respond with incredible Generosity. It is an act of God's divine grace. He has enabled them. He has been gracious to the church, to the congregation. And as a result, it has allowed them or enabled them to be generous with their kingdom resources, despite their severe affliction. Essentially, what Paul is saying, despite this, this severe test of affliction, let me just put it in, in words or, or in vernacular that we would understand, in spite of their rock-bottom poverty, Paul says they were still faithful and generous to give. The Macedonian church, they were able to assist the Christians who were, who were struggling, who were poor in Jerusalem. Their adverse conditions did not diminish their ability to be generous. Instead, it says in the text in chapter 8, verse 2, it says that they overflowed with a wealth 
of generosity. Again, he's referring to the church in Macedonia. Now we see this principle, this, this idea of grace enabling us to be faithful and generous. We see it throughout the scriptures. Think about Abraham, for example. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham to leave his country, his household, his family, everything that he knew, everything that was familiar to him. And he says, I want you to go to a place that I'm gonna show you. He says, I'm gonna make your name great. He says, I'm gonna bless you. Why? So you can be a blessing to the nations. God, God wasn't blessing Abraham and his seed and his family so Abraham could, could stand back with this, with this sense of privilege and honor and look at me, look at what I have. No, God was blessing Abraham. He was putting his grace upon this family so that they could be a blessing to the nation so that through his seed and through his family, all the nations of the world could come to know eventually Christ. And so we have to understand that as God, as God pours his grace upon us, it enables us to be generous with the resources that he has given us. God blesses, he gives grace, he enables so that we can be a blessing to others. His grace has been given. But the question we have to ask ourselves individually, but even as a church, how are we stewarding the grace that has been given to us? God's grace enables us to respond with incredible generosity despite our present conditions. Listen to this, Charles Spurgeon, he tells of receiving, this is somewhat humorous, but listen to this, he, he tells of receiving a wealthy man's invitation to come and preach at his rural church to help the members raise funds to pay off his debts. The man also told Spurgeon that he was free to use his country house, his townhouse, or his seaside house. Spurgeon wrote back, he said, sell one of the places and pay the debt yourself. That was Charles Spurgeon's response. But here's what I want us to see. Let us, let's be careful that we do not reject the grace that's been given to us. Let's be careful that we don't ignore the grace that God has given to us. And let's allow his grace to enable us to respond with faithful generosity for God's kingdom. Disciple of Jesus doesn't reject the grace, doesn't ignore the grace. A disciple and a follower of Jesus realizes that everything that I have in the first place, whether it's, whether it's the money, whether it's the, the time that I have, whether it's the gift that God's given to me, I am to use that. I am to steward that faithfully for the kingdom of God so that he is glorified and he is lifted up. Let's not reject that grace that has been given. Number two, generosity is the response of one, and I think this is key, it is the response of one who has been transformed by the gospel. This is very, very important. Generosity is not something that, that I am coerced into. It is not something that I can be convinced of. It's not something that I can just wake up one day and feel like today must be the, the day that, that, that I'm a generous person. Generosity is the response of someone who has truly been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the text again. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus who encouraged your giving in the first place to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. So here's the question I have. How did a church in extreme poverty, they were rock bottom poverty, how did they overflow in a wealth of liberality? 
And the answer is simple. They were transformed by the gospel. This transformation produced disciples of Jesus whose hearts and attitudes were forever impacted. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What is a generous heart that's been transformed by the gospel? What does that look like in our everyday life? A few things that I want to share with you. Number one, there was such a deep dependence on God to provide for their every need that they gave not only according to their ability, but they gave beyond. They, they, they had such a deep dependence, and we, we cannot have a deep dependence on God unless we've truly been transformed by the gospel. And the Macedonian church had been so transformed, so impacted by the good news of Jesus Christ that, that they had such a deep dependence on him that they entrusted everything they had unto him, knowing that God would indeed Provide. Verse 3 says, I can testify, Paul says, that they, the Macedonian church, gave not only what they could afford, but far more. Now, what, is, what does that mean? They, they weren't reckless in their stewardship, all right? But instead, they diligently determined what they could comfortably do based on their position, and then they gave beyond their comfort level, trusting in a God who would provide. They were able to do far more because they were so impacted by the gospel that they knew as they honored God with the resources that he had given them, that he in turn would take care of their needs. They also understood that God's financial system operated completely different from the worldly system that we live in. You've heard it said over and over. I've said it before. We cannot outgive God. His economy works completely different than the economy of this world. J. Hudson Taylor, he was a missionary, English missionary, in the 1800s to China. And listen to these words, simply said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. His economy, his, his system works completely other from the system of this world. And so the question I ask myself is this, does my heart reflect this generous attitude? Do I have this kind of trust? Do I have such a deep dependence on God that I am able to give of my time and my resources knowing that even if I give above what I'm comfortable doing, that he, God, will provide for my every resource? I wanna follow Christ with that kind of dependence. Number two, they were so grateful for the life-changing nature of the gospel that they gave entirely on their own free will, and they did it with a cheerful spirit. Look at, your, uh, look at chapter 8, verse 4. It says, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. This church, they were so dependent on God. They had been so changed and transformed by the gospel that, that they were begging, they were pleading to participate in the ministry of giving. Talk about a generous spirit. They, they wanted to, to participate in this kingdom work because they themselves have been so impacted by the gospel and the good news of Christ. Now, I think we all realize this. Humans are naturally, we are all naturally selfish individuals. Generosity doesn't typically come for us naturally. Yet when the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, when it transforms our life, we begin to better reflect the spirit and the heart of Christ. 
giving voluntarily instead of reluctantly becomes our default. We see that God, and we even see it here in this picture, it is a reflection of who God is. What did God do? He gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that we could have eternal life. What's very interesting is that we see this spirit of generosity when you talk about the church in Corinth or the church in Macedonia. These were, these were Gentile regions, and yet they were begging, they were pleading to participate in a ministry of giving where the money was gonna go to the Jews, the Jerusalem church. Talk about transformation. We're talking about in an era, in a, in a world where Jews and Gentiles did not get along. There was separation, there was division between the two. But when the gospel transformed their lives, you have Gentiles who are pleading, who are desiring, who want to participate in this ministry of generosity for the Jews to take care of their needs. And so talk about transformation that only happens, this, this wall that is broken down between Jew and Gentile is broken down by the good news of Jesus Christ. They long to, they plead to participate in the privilege and the ministry of giving. My generosity, this is what it looks like, my generosity is expressed in my willingness to share with others freely out of love, not out of coercion or shame. And let me just say this, let me say two things as a sidebar. Number one, I know this is somewhat a message on generosity and giving, and I don't, if you are new here, just so you know, I don't preach on this every single week, but I want you to understand here, I want you to see the heart of what, what Paul is, is, is saying, especially in this context, because there are some of us probably in this room sitting here today, and we've been on maybe the receiving end where we've been coerced or we've been shamed for our lack of generosity or whatever it may be. But I want you to see what Paul is doing here in this text in Corinthians. He's not, he, he's not shaming them or coercing them. He's talking about the Macedonian church and they, they long to participate in this ministry. And they gave freely, not out of coercion, not out of shame, not out of some other technique or method, but they gave out of a, out of a, out of a heart that longed to participate in the kingdom work in front of them. Generous participation in kingdom work is fun. And it's the natural response to the gospel. Let me just say it as plainly, as clearly as possible. It is fun to be generous for the kingdom of God. It, 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 and and it's, I know it's not about you know, what joy it brings to me. It's not about what I get out of it. But there's something special, something fun, something exciting, something joyful about freely giving unto the Lord, knowing that as I give, as I give, as I'm generous, as I have that spirit and that attitude that God's kingdom is growing and expanding and things are happening that I can't even see with my own eye. Like Paul's charge to the Corinthian church, I want us all to excel, myself included, in this gift of generosity. I want you to think just for a moment about the poor widow Jesus refers to, remember, Jesus is kind of standing back and he's watching as people are bringing their offerings into the temple and Pharisees and those that are a little bit more wealthy, um, they are coming in with, and, and they didn't have dollar bills, they had you know, coins and change. And so they were coming into the treasury, coming into the temple, and, and, and they were emptying their pockets. And, and every time they would drop their coins into these, these, these boxes, it would make loud noises. I mean, you could hear it from a distance. 
And, and Jesus is kind of standing back and he's observing, he's watching as people come into the treasury to, to bring in their offerings and their gifts. And, and those with a lot, again, those the Pharisees, they wanna be noticed, they throw it in there and they get excited when it makes a loud sound and people can hear and, and they're rejoicing. It's, it's really their, their attitude and their motives are completely off. But then there is this poor widow who comes and she only has two coins. It's all she's got. She's, she's giving out of her poverty. She's giving everything that she has. And she drops in those two coins. They don't even make a sound. They were so small that that amount was so insignificant that it didn't make a loud enough sound for others to hear. But even though it was a small amount, it, she gave out of a generous heart. She gave out of her poverty. She gave more, as Jesus said, than any other person combined in that moment. She was poor in her resources. Man, she was rich in her willingness to participate in the kingdom of God. Talk about a generous spirit. They were marked, the church of Macedonia, they were marked by the power and centrality of the gospel, that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to Paul. Look at verse five. They even did more than we had hoped For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. Here's what I want you to see here. Very simply, their biggest concern was pleasing Christ, not fulfilling selfish desires. It's what a spirit of generosity looks like. Our our biggest aim and our biggest desire is to please him, not to fulfill our own selfish desires. They understood first things first principle. They understood that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. They had such a desire and a burning passion to do the Lord's work. They weren't going to allow their their economic position to keep them from being involved. When we give ourselves fully to Christ, we acknowledge that everything we have, every gift, every resource, our time, our finances, they belong to him and we wanna use them for his purposes alone. That's what complete surrender looks like. Psalm, the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord and everything there is, everything belongs to him. We are not the owners, he is the owner. We are the stewards and we are to steward faithfully the resources God has given us. And so then I ask this question, have I given my all to him? Because when we do, the kingdom of God advances. Number four, they were so transformed by the gospel that they joyfully and eagerly responded to the genuine need in front of them. This was the example of the Macedonian church, but, but the church in Corinth, hence the letter that Paul is writing, they had fallen behind in this, manner, in this manner. This is why Paul is writing the letter. This is why he sends Titus to really reignite in them, to urge them once again to remember the life-changing nature of the gospel. And if we allow the gospel to do its changing work in us, we will eagerly, voluntarily, and with a cheerful spirit respond every single time. One of the things that we're gonna talk about, one of the aspects of Glad Tidings vision as a whole, not just here at this campus, but one of the elements, and I'm gonna talk more about it tonight, of the vision that we have is, is to be in a position where we as a church can say yes to every legitimate missions need. 
and we want to be able to say, yes, we can support you. Yes, we can, we can help with this project overseas. Yes, we can help here. We want to be in a position where we can say yes to every need. And when we have that spirit of generosity, when we've been changed by the gospel, then it puts ourselves in a position where, we're, where we are able to give our resources, our time, our finances every single time. And we're able to do it with a cheerful spirit, not, not reluctantly, not hesitantly, but, but with a cheerful spirit, with a joyful attitude, knowing that, man, this is sowing seed into the kingdom of God. Every time I serve, I'm making a difference for eternity. Every time I give, God's kingdom is growing and advancing. This is a good reason for us to steward well our resources so we can be in a position to say yes to Jesus. Disciples of Jesus transformed by the gospel, they live lives marked by gracious generosity. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. It all belongs to him and we are his stewards. Number three, generosity is, a, is proof. And I'll give these last two to you quickly. It's proof of the sincerity of, the, of our love for Christ and his mission. Text again in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 10. Since you've excelled in so many gifts, faith, gifted speakers, knowledge, enthusiasm, love from us, Paul says, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here is my advice. It would be good for you, Paul says, to finish what you started a year ago. He says, last year you were the first to begin and you were the first to start giving. Now, I want you to see a couple things. Number one, it's one thing to express with our mouths an eagerness to give, but it's another thing to put our words into actions. Remember the Pharisees there? They, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Let's not just be people who say with our lips, we're gonna, we're gonna do something. Let's actually put it into practice and let's make certain that we're faithful to do that. The Corinthian believers, they were the first ones to give and they desired to do so to the Jerusalem collection, yet eventually their participation in that mission tapered off, which is why Paul writes this letter to encourage them to finish what they started. Paul's desire was for the church to excel in this gracious act of giving. And here's what I want you to see. The self-giving act of Jesus should certainly be our motivating factor leading to acts of gracious generosity. Let me read it again. Verse nine, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Go read Philippians chapter two. I read a portion of it at the end of our worship time today. But you will see that God, who was in heaven, he left the perfection of heaven to come and spend time in the imperfection of this world. He who was rich, he became poor for our sake. We see that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and we are to follow that example. If God voluntarily and without hesitation gave us his son, and Jesus willingly laid down his life for imperfect sinners, then who are we to be stingy, hesitant, and ungrateful in our generosity? If Jesus Christ, the son of God, willingly laid down his life for you, for me, and for every sinner, for all of humanity, then who are we to withhold anything? Who are we to say, eh, I'm not sure generosity is really my gift. We are, to, we are all called to be generous 
with the resources, our time and our finances, with that which God has given to us. And as we reflect on and consider the gospel message, should most certainly stir in each of us to a desire to reflect that same heart of generosity. Finally, number four, and then I'll be done. Generosity is best achieved when we follow diligently God's instructions. I'm not going to read the text again. You'll see it in 2 Corinthians 8, 11 through 15. But let me just make a few points from that. First of all, the Corinthians, they had questions too. Just like us, in regards to biblical stewardship, faithful generosity, they wanted to know how are we to go about this? What does this look like? So Paul provides some very practical advice for them, guiding principles for them. First of all, he speaks of how proportional giving according to our own means and earnings, comes into play. It says in verse 11 that we are to give in proportion to what you have. And I want us all to hear this this morning. All of us are in different places. Yet gracious generosity can be and should be expressed by all. It's not about how much I have and how much I can give, whether it's of my finances or my time, but it's about what heart and what attitude that I give? Am I faithful? Am I generous? It doesn't matter where we're at. We can all have a spirit of generosity. We don't have to have a certain amount of money in our bank account. We don't have to have a a certain amount of gifts that God's given to us before we are deemed generous. Generous is about a spirit and an attitude that you and I can all have if we've truly been transformed by the gospel. So we need to determine what that is for us. Keep in mind, again, the poor widow, she just had two little coins, but she, she was more generous with what she had with her little than every other person that came before her, and they were dropping in those coins, making noise upon noise. Determine what that is for you and be obedient and trust God. Secondly, Paul says we need to develop a pattern of consistent giving to help us live generous lives. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 16. He lays out a plan for the church. He says, now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. There is consistency and there is a pattern of giving that Paul has set aside for the church. Number three, we need to position ourselves to respond faithfully to every genuine need. Chapter eight, verse 14, right now he says you have plenty and can help those who are in need later. They will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. Folks, I want to individually, personally, but also as a church, I want us to be in a position, I want to so steward the resources well that we can be in a position where we can faithfully and honestly say yes to every genuine need so we can be generous with what God has given to us. And finally, we need to check often our attitudes when engaging in kingdom generosity. Worship team, if you want to come. The rest of you, don't tune me out just yet. Some very important things that I want to end with. Checking our attitudes with engaging in kingdom generosity. Here's a few questions that we need to ask ourselves. Number one, am I giving eagerly unto the Lord? Or is there hesitancy and reluctance when I give? We need to check our attitudes. Number two, am I giving cheerfully unto the Lord, anticipating great things for God's kingdom, Or am I more concerned about losing something that's not even mine in the first place? Paul says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. 
Number three, am I giving with an obedient heart and a godly attitude, or am I concerned about the size of the gift that I'm giving? God's not concerned about the size of the gift. He's concerned about the size of the hearts. How big is our hearts? How big is that willingness, that that freely spirit of giving unto the Lord? It's not about the size of the gift. It's about the size of our hearts that God is concerned about. Is my heart willing? Is my heart ready to respond? I want you to close your eyes for just a moment this morning. Because at the center of this message, and again, I know we've talked about prayer, we've talked about abiding in Christ. One aspect of being a faithful follower of Jesus is this idea of gracious generosity. Faithful followers of Jesus are not stingy and hesitant and reluctant when it comes to the resources that we have. Because faithful followers of Jesus recognize what I have, my gift, my resources, my time, my finances, all of those things were given to me by God in the first place. And when we come to that realization, when we've been transformed by the gospel that that God in himself is a generous God, he willingly and freely and out of love gave us his son so that you and I could spend eternity in his presence. And if we've been so changed by the gospel and we realize that we desire to have that same spirit, that same mentality, and folks, it will begin to change our whole concept, our whole perspective when it comes to this idea of generosity. No longer is it this reluctance or hesitancy. Instead, it becomes, I can't wait to participate in the ministry of giving. Some years ago, a woman was preparing a box to be sent to some missionaries in India. A child gave her a penny. The woman used this penny to purchase a tract for the box. Eventually, the track reached a Burmese chief and was used to lead him to Christ. The chief told the story of his conversion to his friends, many of whom believed. Eventually, a church was established and over 1,500 people were converted to Christianity. The lesson is plain. No gift willingly given is too small for God to use. So my challenge for us is to embrace God's challenge to live our lives reflecting the character of God. We serve a generous God, a grace-giving God. Gracious generosity is a mark of a disciple of Jesus. And in conjunction with earnest prayer and abiding in Jesus, his kingdom is greatly impacted.